You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kettle One Botanical. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is a real passion project for us at Goop. Twice a week, we sit down with a guest who has the potential to change the way we look at the world. You'll hear a lot from my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, who's incredibly curious and brilliant. And you'll hear from me, of course. Today, I'm talking to Lupita Nyong'o. As an actor and a woman, I've long admired Lupita from afar. Like everyone else, I thought she was brilliant in 12 Years a Slave and Black Panther. And I can tell you she's just as brilliant and stunning in person. Lupita and I sat down at Universal Studios where she was getting ready for the release of her new film, Us, which was written and directed by the very talented Jordan Peele. If you hear any background noise during our conversation, it's probably the tram at Universal Studios or some Harry Potter fans or maybe possibly Jaws. Please forgive us. Lupita and I talked about her upbringing and family and the role she sees herself playing in the wider culture today. We talked about processing shame and how we relate to what's unknown, unfamiliar, or uncomfortable. I'm excited for you to hear from this amazing woman. It's interesting because... I've been learning recently shame that I didn't even know I possessed. And it's learned. It's learned. It's inherited, you know, and it's normalized. Just before we get to the conversation, let's talk about one of our partners. Nearly any event is better with a cocktail. We abide by this motto at Goop, especially when it comes to planning our wellness summits in Goop Health. At our summit, we did a final toast with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical makes for about as delicious a cocktail as I think you can get. It's vodka distilled with real botanicals. There's no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, and it's made with non-GMO grain. There are three different varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. You can head to goop.com for some cocktail ideas using Kettle One Botanical. And to shop Kettle One Botanical online, go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Okay, time for today's chat. So I read that you were born in Mexico City, which was such a surprise. Yeah, yeah. So how, because you were raised in Kenya, is that right? Yes, that's and, right. And your parents are from Kenya. Yes, yes. And so why were you born in Mexico City? Well, my dad was in self-exile. Oh. He is a politician. He was a professor and he was part of the group of people who were fighting for democracy in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And after a series of events, including the disappearance of his brother, who was never found, he decided to go and lay low and took a job working at the, at the Colegio de Mexico, where he taught political science. Wow. And so I was born in his third year there. Amazing. Yeah. And then how old were you when you moved back to Kenya? Less than one. He then worked for the UN for a bit. So my first steps were actually taken in New York. Wow. And and then shortly after I turned one, we moved back to Kenya. And then I stayed there and grew up there until I was 16. 
do when my fe- parents sent me back to Mexico. Oh, they sent you back. I was yeah. going to say, do you have an affinity? Like, do you feel Mexican at all? Well, my name is Lupita. So I always knew that I had, I there was another place that I belonged. Right. And then when I was 16, I had a Mexican passport. So oh, my parents were like, well, if you're going to have this, you might as well speak the language. And so they sent me over there to learn Spanish. ¿Aprendiste? And, sí, claro que bien. sí. Pero está desapareciendo un poquito. No, pues vamos a practicar un poquito y así podemos... <laughs> mejorar. Okay, okay. No sabía que hablas español. Sí, yo ah. hacía un intercambio en España cuando ah. tenía 15 años. Vivía en, en un pueblo. Y, okay. sí. ¿Y cómo lo has men- mantenido? Pues por amigos sí. y también cuando estábamos viviendo en Londres, uh-huh. yo tenía una niñera de España porque ah. quería que los niños aprendieran. Ah. Y me encanta la lengua, sí. la cultura. Sí, yo también. Bueno, I guess we better switch back to English. Okay. <laughs> Isolate half the audience. Okay, so you went back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then then from there, did you go to Yale? Or from, you no, went back? so I went back to Kenya. After seven months of being there, I was just like, I'm not ready to grow, uh, grow up just yet. I need my mother. And I went back to Ken- to Kenya where I did international baccalaureate for oh, wow. 2 years and then I went to Hampshire College for my oh, undergrad that's so cool uh-huh and then and then I went to Yale for to grad Yale. school yeah so a lot of schooling lot. <laughs> here well, there and everywhere it paid off look at you now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> masters and did you study acting you got yes, a masters yes i, I did it's very impressive mm, thank you <laughs> you got a lot of diplomas on the wall <laughs> you know yeah i needed them to legitimize myself to the rest of uh, my community you know <laughs> were there many kenyans at yale when you were there no no not not certainly not in the grad school i was the only one but the reason why it dawned on me to go to drama school is because I had a friend that I'd actually done a play with in Kenya when I was 14 and he had gotten into the Yale School of Drama some years before I did so him getting into the school first of all made me aware that there was a school to study acting I didn't even know that and that a Kenyan could get into it so you know that was how my you know, my imagination was able to expand to consider acting as a possible path for me because I just felt, yeah, exactly. It it was possible because someone that looked like me, that was from where I'm from had done it, you know? It's so important, you know, the 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 person who goes first, I think, and like blazes the trail for other people. Yeah, it it really is. And did you enjoy it? I loved drama school. I absolutely loved it because... I got to wake up every day and do the thing I love all day with people who loved it just as much as I did, sometimes more, you know, and respected it. And there was just like a serious playfulness every single day. And I remember after the three years, I just thought, you know what, if I don't act again in my life, I have given it a fair shot. And, you know, I've gotten, I was, I felt so full from that experience. Mm. Were you the only one who was there who has an Oscar? From your time there? At the moment, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But many have come before me, that's for sure. (laughs) Didn't Meryl Streep get a... Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. A lot, yeah, there's been quite a few. Who else? Uh, Sigourney Weaver. Oh, right. Right. Angela Bassett. Oh, I didn't know that. They both went to Yale? Oh, that's Mm -hmm. right. I actually did know that. Yeah, yeah, That's very cool. Yeah, there's quite a few that have gone through there. So was it clear... 
when you were leaving Yale, what the path was to pursue acting as a professional career? Because I feel like a lot of times people are studying something and they have incredible passion about it. And then there's no clear path to how do I get an agent or how do I submit my script? Yeah. I mean, you know what it was? I was very fortunate. I got cast in 12 Years a Slave before I graduated. Oh, wow. How did they find you? So... In my, I had done, it's so crazy how these things happen. So right before I left Kenya, I had done this little show on MTV base called Sugar. And it's a three-part online TV show about, that's it's like an AIDS awareness PSA, a really sexy, cool AIDS awareness PSA. And I'd done that and it had gone into a second season and they wanted me to come back. And so I had reached out to my, my professors to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going back and I really want to have someone negotiate my contract for me because the first time I'd done it on my own and it was just a rubbish contract. Right. And so they put me in touch. One of my teachers put me in touch with a manager and she ended up representing me for that gig. And then on, so when I was graduating, I already had her on board and then she brought me the script for 12 Years a Slave, Dee Dee Ray. And so that's how I, uh, that's how I got on an on audition. And so what was that process like for you? Uh, it was grueling. So it was right at the time when I was preparing to graduate. So we had Showcase, which is when you go into New York and L.A. and you you do some short scenes and show how desirable you are. <laughs> and uh, so we were doing that process. And I put myself on tape. And because I was going to be in L.A., the casting director, Francine Maisler, called me in. Uh, she's an old... She was one of my dad's best friends. Oh, is she? was she? funny? Oh, cool. I know. She's so lovely. She's amazing. She is. And so she called me in, and I did another audition with her. A very... She rolled up her sleeve. She got my shoes off. We, we got in. Wow. And yeah, she really worked with me. And for that, I'm internally grateful, you know? And so I did that. And then after that, I believe the next step was flying to New Orleans to meet with Steve McQueen and doing another grueling audition with him. And that was a, another hour of just working these, these scenes. And, and what, Tell people so who, who can't imagine, like, what is that like? What is asked of you when you're doing an audition like that? Well, you get this, you have the sides and it's about, I, I mean, I think you, you perform the sides and then you get notes and it really depends on who the audition is with because sometimes the, no, the, the, the notes can be quite, quite prescriptive and I don't think that's helpful. And then you just do it over and over again in different ways after, you know, like with Steve, what would happen was I'd do it and then we'd have a conversation where, you know, he's just talking about this, you know, the backstory or whatever. And then he's hoping, I guess, to see how that conversation inspires or informs mm. your next take of the, of the piece. Do you work kind of more intellectually or are you sort of more like method, like get the feeling in your body more, or is it a mix? Oh yeah, that's an interesting question. I think for me, my first stop is the intellectual because those, the intellectual is what will block my creativity. So I have to satisfy my intellectual appetite before I can get to the emotional and the physical. Because if I can believe the facts, if I can believe the, the, the logic, then I can infuse emotion and physicality in it. 
So (laughs) that's it for me because I'm the the last one to believe myself, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's an exercise in, 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 in working to believe in the imaginary circumstances. Right. Yeah. So he, so you got to, you, you did that intense audition and then and the, it was there, there was an ac blowing so hard and i was freezing oh. and i was wearing this little top i'll never forget how cold i was oh, God. <laughs> and then how quickly thereafter did you know did you hear you got the part yeah so that happened and then i went back to my hotel room i remember and then i got a call saying that steve wanted me to join him for dinner and he was having dinner with a bunch of people and I went to the dinner and there was Michael K. Williams and I can't even remember who else was there. And then, and I was told that was a good sign. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I hope so. I mean, and it was this dinner where I was, I just felt so like dwarfed. There were like famous people all around me. And I was like, I don't even know what world this is that I'm living in. <laughs> and then I was, yeah, was Michael there? I think Michael Fassbender was there. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Anyway, I don't remember. And then... I flew back to New Haven, and shortly after I got in, I got a call from Steve. And he told me, I would very much like you to play the role of Patsy. And I remember I was standing outside my apartment on the tarmac, and I sat down in the middle of the parking lot. And I said, I would very much like to accept. Yeah, and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I just could not wow. believe it. Yeah. Did you have then, any idea how much it would change your life? I had some notion of it because, you know, I was going to be working with Michael Fassbender and Chiwetel Ejiofor and Brad Pitt and these names that really were just so far away <laughs> from, like, my reality. So that freaked me out, yeah. obviously. So I knew it was going to be of significance. There is no way I could have envisioned what that film did and, you know, the the platform it gave me and how far it has taken me. Because also in the script, you know, the script is this odyssey. Yeah. Solomon Northup keeps moving and, and, you know, you meet all these characters as they go. So there was no way for me to really appreciate how that could play out Mm -hmm. in the film, the significance of my one episode, you know? Right. It wasn't clear that that it wasn't a given that things would turn out as they did. And what was it like winning the Oscar? That was, (laughs) you know, I loved it when Olivia Coleman said, this is hilarious, <laughs> you know, because there, there, there is a little bit of that, right? Like, this is mad. It's mad. It was just mad. You know, I didn't grow up watching the Academy Awards. So the first time, the, the first time I experienced it was probably two years before I was there. Wow. <laughs> like watching the actual show from start to finish. It was very, very surreal. But that's why I had my brother with me because I needed that touchstone that would just be like the realest thing I know. (laughs) You know, the boy whose diapers I changed. I needed him there to make it real and also to allow me to enjoy the moment and just feel the giddiness of like, oh my God, we're at the Academy Awards and there's Julia Roberts and there's John Travolta, (laughs) you know? And then winning was just, I just, it it was very hard to compute very very difficult to compute and i was just filled with such a deep gratitude and a sorrow as well because 
I had gotten to that point of quote unquote glory from the the pain mm. of a one particular individual who was real, you know, whose life I got to portray, but also more importantly the collective pain mm. of this country. And there I was, you know, receiving this award, a moment of of deep joy, but it was also of deep sorrow and I still feel it when I think about it. Mm. What do you think that platform that all of that gave you like do you feel like it gives you it's imbued you with a certain sense of responsibility do you feel like you are I don't know and I think in a way when you become like this amazing symbol of a culture yeah and through art through art like that and you're almost like helping people metabolize the yeah. pain of mm-hmm. the culture and where it is today like do you feel the weight of that do you I don't experience it as weight. Good. I experience it as an opportunity, mostly. And I recognize that I am one of a very few that have this kind of platform. And so I understand that because of that, I might not be able to... I I have to take responsibility for more than just my representation. And what does that mean to you? What does it mean to me to to be that? Well, it means I'm um a, I am hopefully an important role to play, mm-hmm. and that we all want an important role, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so th- that's the role I get to play in my real life, you know, as as I seek to play important roles in fiction as well. That in my real life I have a, an important role. And I think because I have the father that I have who put his life on the line quite literally for the good of or for the betterment of his people, I definitely feel that I am programmed to seek to be of use to more than just myself. Right. And that it's just my programming. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that I I experience as a burden, but I experience it perhaps more of a calling mm-hmm. even i don't experience it with heaviness at all good good i'm no. so glad yeah i i feel like at all times i'm being myself and in the moments of course there would be there are definitely moments when i feel weightier than others mm-hmm. and those are moments when i need to withdraw and i do good for <laughs> you you always seem so incredibly self-possessed and mm. strong <laughs> And so I was going to ask you how much your family had a role in how you perceive yourself and how you are in the world, how you go through the world. I always felt like I was, it took me until I was 40 to stop feeling, I don't know, or to start feeling wholly like myself. Mm. I, I think my parents have, my family has played an incredibly important role. They are my anchor, mm-hmm. you know? And I have an extremely supportive family, not just nuclear, but uh, the extended aunties family as well. Oh, the aunties and the uncles and the cousins. And I mean, we roll deep. <laughs> we roll deep. And I feel them. I feel their presence in my life, even when I'm thousands of miles away from them. And my mom... My mom is a, an, she's an, an exceptional human being. And of course I'm biased because she's my mother, but she's, she's so selfless mm. and she 
I think has been pivotal in my development mm. of just like identity and self-worth. My mother is Amazing. one of those people who she is who she is and she's not apologizing for it. And she is so con comfortable in being herself that she wears her ignorance with humility that's you know so beautiful i mean yeah <laughs> it's like incredible but that's so profound because really what that is is like vulnerability to yeah. being human and to being open to learning yeah exactly so she will she will she will speak of what she knows about and what she doesn't with equal measure i respect you know? that so much i do too and i think for me that was been one of the hardest things for me to learn ever since i was little i hated not knowing mm. i hate like one of my biggest fears is coming across as an idiot or like i'm just like dumb <laughs> And so, like in class, I just remember, wave that Ivy League MFA girl. Just wear it. Just tape it to your that's forehead. Why, that's why I went to the Ivy League school. You know, I was like, I gotta do everything I can to appear as smart as possible. But like in school, I wouldn't. I would have trouble raising my hand to say I didn't understand something because I just felt such a shame for not understanding. But witnessing my mom not experience mm -hmm. shame with the things that she didn't understand and experiencing her learning them. Like my mom reinvented herself when she was like 40 and she just overhauled her life mm -hmm. and changed careers and did it. And I, it was like shocking. And, you know, and she's she continues to transform. And for her, learning is what life is yeah. about. And I think I've definitely picked up some yeah. of that as well and gotten to a place where I can more confidently say when I don't know things. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was talking about this at Goop headquarters the other day because mm -hmm. one of the most powerful things that I've learned from my job as CEO with a company is that there's so much to learn and mm -hmm. there's so much I don't know. And at a certain point, you know, it's like a few years ago, I'm trying to kind of like get my street MBA and learn on the go and Google all night and get business books and everything. And and I thought, you know, I'm resistant to this idea that people know that I don't know what this acronym is or, yeah, you know, yeah. and then at a certain point, I just had to say, this is part of my journey and mm -hmm. I have to embrace what I don't know and I have to not be embarrassed to ask questions. Exactly. And it gave me this whole other next chapter of my life that's, that's been amazing. That's powerful. Yeah, because ignorance doesn't have to be permanent. No, You know, exactly. it can be momentary and then now you know it and you never need to not know it again, right. you know, but you have to allow your yourself to learn yeah and yes and it starts with admitting what you don't yeah. know we'll be right back after this quick break the other day someone asked me about what helps me transition from the office to home my answer cocktails <laughs> there's something about the ritual of sitting down with a good cocktail at the end of a long day for me, it's a way of leaving work behind and unwinding into the night. It's about relaxing, enjoying the moment, and just being with family and friends. Classic cocktails are great, but our food editors are really good at putting their own spin on tried and true drinks, and they're always coming up with the best cocktails using Kettle One Botanical. It's vodka distilled with real botanicals. In the Goop Test Kitchen, we've made a cucumber mint cooler and a botanical breeze which both taste incredibly refreshing. And then our food editors came up with three different takes on a spritz. These were all fun cocktails like a crimson and clover sparkler with tart grapefruit, 
and a kombucha cooler with a lemon twist. You can check out the recipes on goop.com. They all taste great, but we also really like Cattle One Botanical because they are very goopy. There's no sugar or artificial sweeteners in it, and it's made with non-GMO grain. There are three different varietals to choose from, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. You can shop all Cattle One Botanical flavors at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You touched on something that I wanted to ask you about, which was I read your amazing op-ed in the New York Times a while ago, and you talked about shame and how isolation is kind of, I'm putting words in your mouth, that's sort of an incubator for, for shame. And, you know, this is, as I said to you, like something that we talk about a lot, that shame is something that weighs women down so much. Mm -hmm. And I think shame is like this powerful force of like, it it keeps you small. It keeps Mm -hmm. you from moving forward. You know, it's like, it feels like this heavy thing that you hold on to. And so that's why we talk about some of the more like difficult or controversial things at Goop, especially around like women's sexuality or something, Mm -hmm. because we want to help eliminate shame. People hold on you know, we all as women, I think, hold on so much to our trauma. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to, it's, it's painful to bring it up. It's painful to come together. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to ask you, because I was so struck by that quote, what your relationship is to shame. Yeah. My relationship to shame, you know, it's interesting because I've been learning recently shame that I didn't even know I possessed. And it's learned, it's learned, it's inherited, you know, and it's normalized. Do you think thing. it's transgenerational as well? What do you mean by transgenerational? Like, do you think that we as women feel trauma of our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers? A hundred percent. Me too. I think so. Yeah. I definitely think so. I don't know what science would back that up, but like... I feel spiritually that that's true. I, I'm realizing you mentioned like women's sexuality. That's something that I'm learning right now. I didn't even realize. I thought I was like, a, you know, a modern emancipated woman. And I'm realizing there's so many things that I still feel shame of. Just at the Academy Awards again, this was an eye-opening Academy Award, I will say. When the woman who won the documentary short went up there and she said, I'm not crying because I'm on my period. That sentence i just i we all burst out laughing but i felt like yes you've just freed (laughs) us all (laughs) just and i never even realized that i felt shame to even admit i have a period and we all have periods you know as we're lucky if we're lucky actually (laughs) if you're lucky you have a period you know but that, that it's such a normal part of being a woman and yet it's it's this thing that is like hidden and we don't talk about and how much stuff how much you end up processing in relation to that as shame right you know as not worthy of being addressed of being dealt with so i'm in shock you know that of of about how much shame i still harbor about things that i thought i was long since emancipated by 
and I'm I'm just right now with all these podcasts going on and I'm finding these podcasts with women talking honestly about their experiences, about sex, about, you know, about their bodies and stuff. And it's so helpful because then it's like, you're not alone. And it's so important to have that reference point mm. because then you, you let go of your exceptionalism, you know, and, and begin to really participate in what is human and shared. And that's just so much healthier, yeah. you know, and then, and that's how you can, you can bring about change because you, you can, you can relate, you know, that you're not alone in any particular issue. Mm. Yeah. It's strengthening. That's what it is. Amazing. How much of that do you think is cultural? You know, I've never been to sub-Saharan Africa. I'm oh, embarrassed to say. Oh, we've got to get you there. I know. Can I go with you next <laughs> yes, time? Yes, okay. please. I would please. love to. Yes. Kenya is a very good first country to visit. Okay. <laughs> um, let's have a girl's trip. Yeah. And so do you think that any of that is cultural or do you think it's pervasive for women all over the world? I definitely think that culture has something to do with it, but how related is it, you know, that mm -hmm. I can be going through that here and I, you know, people, are, I know there's women going through it in India and it's all over the world, I yeah. think, but it, I think the, there's nuance and of course subtleties and things like that. We're all socially programmed, uh, socially and culturally programmed, right? Yeah, but I think there's a lot of that suppression and oppression of, of women everywhere. Everywhere, I know, I agree. Are you an expat? Mm -hmm. Do you live in America now? I do, I live in New York. Oh, <laughs> I've never thought of myself as an expat. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was an expat for a really long time. I lived in London uh -huh. and it was so valuable. I loved being an expat and I loved seeing like very mundane daily things, like through the eyes of being an expat, I yeah. just found everything. So I felt so awake, mm, you know, cause it was mm -hmm, so different mm -hmm. to where I was from. I yeah. never got used to it. Yeah. Now it gets, it gets interesting when you've been away so long that you start feeling that way about your home country. I know. Right. <laughs> That's how it is for me now. I've lived here for so long that now when I go home, I start to feel more alive and awake there. Cause all of a sudden I'm like, Oh yeah, that's how, I used to do things or, you know, oh, that's changed. You know, it's, yeah, it's very bizarre. Oh gosh, amazing. <laughs> do you want to have kids? Yes. Yes. I love children. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. We have time. You're, you're <laughs> so young. Fingers crossed. <laughs> In your roles, you, you seem to like squeeze the juice out of every, you know, it's like you're so in it. And I, I wondered what, what is your, do you have a wellness routine or how do you, how do you kind of set yourself up for like optimal channeling? Mm. Well, meditation has become a very big part of my life. Do you do it every day? I definitely try and yeah, do it every too. day. What kind of meditation do you do? Well, last year I went to a 10 day Vipassana meditation oh. retreat. And so that's now my practice. Right. It's the one that I've spent most time studying and yeah, and it's such a simple philosophy and yet so hard to keep a grasp on, right. you know, this idea that to kind of unclutch from, from things, from pleasure and aversion and just be like a, a, a 
pedestrian on the side of a road watching the cars go by, the cars of your life go by. It's not easy to yeah. to maintain that kind of uh, mindset all the time, but I think the success is in always striving for it, you know? Yeah. So that's a big part. And then physical, physical training is an important part for right. me. Yeah, when my body, when I can engage my body and get my blood going and get the oxygen going, mm-hmm. then I feel more present and awake to, you know, take on a different person's life, you know. Yeah. Was um, Black Panther very physical? Did you have to train a lot? Yes, I had to train a whole I lot. I love that movie. Oh, thank you. It was so good. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that involved a lot of training. I was also so happy that to see it was nominated for Best Picture. Right? I thought like, yeah. you know, I thought it was really appropriate because if you look at the film industry as a business, it's like these incredible tent poles, these Marvel movies, which high five, yeah. we're, both, we're both Marvel <laughs> yes, girls. Yes, <laughs> I think they've kind of redefined cinema in a way and it was such a good film and Mm. it was so entertaining and culturally so important Mm -hmm. I remember when that movie ended and I was with all my kids and I just thought my god you know this never would have gotten made when I was my son's age yeah you know a completely black cast black director Mm mm-hmm with such an incredible story of empowerment. I think mm-hmm. there was like one white person in the whole movie. <laughs> two. 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 <laughs> so I I mean, congratulations on that. That oh, was just thank you. Thank you. No, it was it was definitely significant that we got that recognition that, you know, Ruth Carter and Hannah Beekler yes. ended up being the first black people in their category, period. And first women to win those awards. Amazing. Like that's such a those such big deals. What do you think? think the impact of that film is or what do you hope it will be you know we're living in this time which is you know without getting too political mm-hmm. really where it feels like we're regressing mm-hmm. and then yet culturally you see black artists succeeding like never before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what do you think you know, what do you think the, what is, what is your hope that the legacy of, of Black Panther is culturally going forward? Well, I think we've proven that there is an appetite for st- story with Black characters in it if the story is compelling. I mean, at the end of the day, you know that it is possible for a Black character to be culturally relevant to more than just the black experience in America. Right. You know, Absolutely. that that we can occupy uh, the human experience, really, right. and that people will relate to it all over the world, even in China, where there was such uh, little expectation for that film, you know. And was it a big hit in China? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so that has been debunked, and hopefully then we don't pick back up that fake narrative which is just right. it's just not the truth and then you know it's become a part of the culture just cultural lexicon and stuff in ways that you know i don't think i don't know what the lasting legacy will be i think wakanda is always going to be a staple you know and wakanda forever and vibranium and and those kinds of things in ways that star wars yeah. uh, has been for more than one generation you know i think black panther has the potential to be that you know really be a cultural st- touchstone for we now need to and get that ride at disneyland oh yeah i know right? i they better get that wakanda ride up <laughs> I mean, Jordan Peele is another 
director who's been able to kind of burst through all these cultural lines with his films. And obviously you have this one coming out, Us, Mm -hmm. which am I going to be like, am I going to make it through? I am, I am not. Are you scared? I'm scared of scary movies, which is weird because I love murder shows if it's like a true murder thing. Uh Uh-huh. But like getting scared. Yeah. Yeah. Or stabbed or like blood. I don't know. I can't handle it. Do you think you're gonna you you think you're gonna brave it and and try and see it? I have to see everything you've ever done. So I'm gonna have to. (laughs) Well how scary is it though? I'm not the best person to ask. Because you like because you were there. I was there twice. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. You know, and I'm responsible for a lot of the fear inducing things. Right. So I'm not the best person to ask, but you know what Jordan is so good at, you know, is, is like infusing a scary movie with so much more than just the, the shakes and the screams, you know, he also has this way of, of managing both the comic and the horrific at once. So you can't help, but you have that involuntary laugh right when you need to stay tense to handle the scary (laughs) moment. So it's, and that it's so, so it creates this internal chaos that's kind of fun. It's kind of like riding a roller coaster. Right. And that's what I loved about Get Out. I'm not yeah. I don't like scary movies usually, but I watched Get Out five times in one month. Wow. Because I was just like, oh my God, this is such a good movie. But it's movie. brilliant, right? It's, it's so like, brilliant. Yeah. Every time you watch it, you it's see layered. something new. Exactly. Yeah. And us is What is us that. about? Tell us what it's about. So us is about a woman called Adelaide Wilson who is riddled with an inexplicable trauma from her past and when we meet her in present day she and her family her young family husband and two kids are heading to their summer home for a getaway an idyllic american getaway and she has this foreboding sense that something bad is going to happen and it is confirmed when that night at the top of their driveway, they see these four shadowy figures and then their lives are never the same. (laughs) (laughs) I'll brace myself. Yes, please. I suggest you have like a pillow in front of you, you know, something like... I always have to, it's scary. You know, I I figured out my ways of watching scary movies. I like to watch them standing up too because it makes me feel like I can leave (laughs) when it gets too, too hard. <laughs> they should have standing up cinemas or something. <laughs> it's always so weird too how much the music makes you scared and you're like, I'm a grown ass woman. Why I, I they're manipulating <laughs> me with this music and it's working after yes. all this time. I know, I know. It's so annoying. And I'm definitely one of those people who talks at the screen and talks in the experience because it's my way of coping, you know. Because it just not? makes me feel better. Let it know? out. <laughs> Do you are you a musical person? Do you I like would like music. to believe so. Do yeah. you sing? You know, I I can hold a note. In fact, I have a film coming out that where in which I sing, but I'm not trained by any stretch of the imagination. It you know, I I play a kindergarten teacher and who sings like songs to her her class of five-year-olds so so (laughs) what is that film it's called little monsters and it comes out in in, over halloween okay yeah is that another scary movie it's a zombie romantic comedy jesus lupita (laughs) but it's a romantic comedy so it's a totally different zombie romantic comedy yeah and it's unapologetic it's it's australian so you know australian humor is do you have an australian accent in it no i don't i don't thank god that's so hard to do (laughs) it is hard do you listen to music ever like 
to yeah. get you into a role or always if yeah. I have to cry in a scene I always have to listen to music oh first. yeah yeah no I usually I will create playlists for actually sound is very important to me in getting ready for a role so I'll create playlist for the every role. role I'm playing yeah what 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 would one consist of like what kind of music really it just depends on what catches me for that role and sometimes it makes absolutely no sense like with this one I'm gonna tell you and I'm only gonna tell you this one <laughs> one of the songs that I found myself latching onto was Jacob Collier his song Hideaway I don't know that. Oh uh, yeah, it's a beautiful song, okay, and he's an okay. incredibly talented mm-hmm. musician. He, this is a, it's an album called In My Room, and he was like, he was in his teens when he made this album, and he basically made it in his bedroom, and it was he had all these different instruments, and he plays all of them oh, and does wow. all the vocals. He's kind of crazy. It's amazing these young kids who are growing up these talented musical kids who are growing up with all the equipment you know so they have all the computers and mm-hmm. everything like charlie puth that kid he's amazing he i haven't heard he of him. composes everything and he's perfect pitch and he's in his room with this yeah computer and uh what's the english kid my son is obsessed with rex orange county oh, okay you know, these guys are like these young yeah it's amazing yeah it's crazy you did an interview in Vogue and something you said something which really resonated with me that sometimes when you're not comfortable with something, like you, you really value that feeling. Am I saying it right? And mm. you sort of push yourself. You value trying new things that you're not comfortable yeah. doing. Yeah. So what do you get out of that? Like, why do you want to push yourself or test yourself? Because, uh, yeah, that's a really good. Why do I want to do that? Well, because... I enjoy learning, first and foremost, I think. But I think we surprise ourselves when we put ourselves in unfamiliar territory. Yes. You know? And because I'm an actor and I'm my job is to put myself in unfamiliar territory all the time, trying new things is a way to exercise the discomfort of starting a new role, you know, which is always uncomfortable, right? It really is. Yeah, because you're always beginning yeah. again. And like you could have been great in that role you just played, but that role <laughs> has got nothing to do with the one you're about to play now. Yeah. So though you have the tools and you can apply them to a new role, the essence of what you're doing is so different. And, you know, our job is in public. You know, everybody gets to see if you you succeed or fail, right. you know. And that, I think, can create a lot of tension because... Really, the only people who do this successfully without it costing them anything is children because they got nothing to lose. And as adults, we have we have we think we have so much to lose. Right. And it's part of us, our survival for our bodies to do that, to get into habit and pattern and stuff like that to keep you safe, keep you alive. You learn a lesson and you stay on that path. But then that can kind of stifle imagination. Right. Mm-hmm. And possibility. And so and I really love being, you know, surprised by myself. And I think it also staves away the degeneration of the brain, right? They say, keep learning an instrument or, you know, a language and stuff. And it kind of staves away those things. Have you ever worked with an actor that has put you in that kind of uncomfortable terrain? Not, not like in a mean way, just like by their acting style oh yes like who's who who and how I'm well so- 
Winston Duke, who plays my husband in Us, he is a very dangerous actor. Ooh. And that's, you know, I mean that in the best of I ways. I love that. Tell me more. He's bold and he just throws you strong balls. And with this film, there was a little room for, though it was very tightly written, there was room for improv. And boy, oh boy, Winston would take that and run with it. But wow. even beyond making up his own lines, even just the action, he, 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 what he does so well, and I've known him, we went to school together and we're old friends, so we have that oh, wow. history. But what he does so well is that he studies a role and finds the human behavior that would make it like the most natural. And because we were playing husband and wife, you know, he took great liberties and like really just like <laughs> he knew our marriage and in ways where i was like oh oh i, I didn't know that was our marriage okay now i know you know wow. and so you have to stay alert with him you know and on your toes because he's coming with something you know? wow <laughs> yeah and it was great it was great i think it makes it it definitely made me a better actor because you don't go into a scene with kind of like back seated thinking, oh yeah, I know what the scene is about because it looks like it's about one thing, but Winston will throw you a look that you weren't expecting that will kind of just change the shape of the scene, you know? I love and that. Yeah, yeah. So he definitely working with him. Wow. <laughs> let's discuss how hot Chadwick. No, <laughs> no please, let's do. <laughs> he is so hot. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I was doing the Avengers I think four yeah, that's coming yeah. out. Mm -hmm. And so I got to meet him and everything. And I like couldn't concentrate around him. <laughs> you and me both, honey. <laughs> I feel like you are one of the people at the forefront of the culture who's really changing the conversations around fashion and beauty mm. and really kind of moving culture forward in that way. And, you know, not retouching hair and you're bringing African designers right into your wardrobes. And mm. from my perspective, I feel like we've come a really long way in terms of what is, how do we define beauty? Mm -hmm. And so from your perspective, do you feel like being one of the figures that's redefining beauty? Do you feel that we've, it's changed a lot? Do you feel that there's a lot further to go in terms of how culturally we define beauty and well i i definitely feel the difference you know i see a whole lot more dark-skinned models in advertising and so on way more than i saw when i was growing up right. and with that other cultures you know so i i i must acknowledge that and i appreciate that and i'm very happy to participate in that right i think there is a lot more to do even behind the creation of the images, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of who's, 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 who's doing the work of getting these things, of, of, of these things like photographers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There is such a small number of female photographers, of photographers of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't tell you, I, I, I can count on my left hand, probably the, the, photographers of color that I've worked with period you can know? you can you incorporate them more like if you're on a big advertising shoot can you, you can but where are they and what 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 experience do they have you know it's that thing of like someone can only like someone can only get the experience to work on such a thing if someone gives them a shot you know 
And I definitely am trying my best to change that as well so that there's inclusion both in front and, and behind the camera. So there's ways to go. And for me, I, I, I think it's really important for us to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The mm -hmm. idea is not to rest in our loins and just say, oh, look, there's so-and-so and so-and-so, right. we're good. You know, there's always more work to be done. Like even Yalitza from Roma being the first, I think she was the first indigenous woman to be on the cover of Vogue Mexico. What? That's crazy. I didn't know that. I think so. Wow. You know? Yeah. And you have a big beauty contract with Lancome. Yes, I mean, I that's, do. that is, is such, that's incredible. And, and I, I, I think that company has been great about being more inclusive. So it doesn't mm -hmm. surprise me, but it's just so major. And then, you know, it's like, you have to think about all of the little girls who, of color who will, yeah. you know, see that image, see you yeah. and you defining beauty and yeah. for a huge beauty company in that way. And right. it does make a difference. It does make a difference. And because for me, the person that made that difference for me was Alec Weck. Yes. When I will like I what love came, her. I mean, yeah. She is so gorgeous. Yes. So unique. Yes. And I remember her being on on the red on the catwalk and people talking about her beauty and it was shocking to me wow. because I had just never seen that happen. Someone that looked like me, she's not from very far away from where I'm from, you know. Our ethnicities are quite close actually. So her features are very similar to mine and I was like oh my goodness people are saying she's beautiful well maybe i'm beautiful you know <laughs> i hate and to break <laughs> it to you sister hey you're beautiful <laughs> yeah but it took seeing someone like her and seeing right. people appreciating her as she was for me to feel like maybe i was worth it you know and then to think that i might be doing the same thing for a whole generation of little girls who are looking at me and thinking oh yes i too am beautiful that's really powerful you are Thanks for joining my conversation with Lupita Nyong'o today. I loved what she said about ignorance, that it doesn't have to be permanent, that allowing yourself to learn often starts with admitting what you don't know. Be sure to see Lupita in theaters. Her new film, Us, is out now. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to The Goop Podcast. We hope you'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. To keep up, tap subscribe. And please let us know what you think. You can rate, review, or hit us up on social. For more, just head to goop.com slash the podcast 